Yesterday, we put up the Christmas tree at home. So we're getting into the swing of things with Christmas. And we normally do it on the 1st of December, but we realize that the 1st of December is chocker. So we just got stuck into it yesterday and uh, started preparing, got the tree up. I don't know about you, but you've got to have the lights on first in our house. You've got to put the lights on first and then everything goes together. So we're coming together at this time of year and Christmas is coming, Advent next Sunday. Uh, and I just thought, well, let's prepare. Let's prepare for the advent of Christ and get ready. And I want to share this morning about preparing for Christ's advent, but also pointing to Christ's return. Uh, because this is the time. You guys are al- We're alive at an exciting time uh, in history. The Bible teaches Jesus has come once in the flesh, but he will return again. And, uh, you know, more and more people are becoming open, I believe, to the message of salvation uh, from deliverance of the idol of me and my, my world and everything, uh, and, and from the deceit of the enemy that's so prevalent in our world, uh, and hungry for God, and Jesus' words, the field is white unto harvest. People are ready to receive Jesus. People want to know what God is saying. Uh, and, you know, the other day I had someone come to the door and knock on the door. He had a, a vest on. He was looking for um, some sponsorship or some donations uh, towards I can't actually remember what it was towards. It was probably a really good deed, but we got talking. I was actually cooking steak on our Weber, and so if I'm honest, I was a little bit like, come back, another, but I, I talked with him, and as a Christian, I just um, hosp- was hospit- hospitable to him, and we got talking, and in a long story short, essentially, I just said to him, you know, what do you, you think is happening in the world today? And uh, after a little while, he, he kind of said to me, oh, I've been looking into Islam. And I've looked into uh, Christianity, and I'm, I'm realizing that some are just following rules and doing this. And it was just an opportunity to talk about Jesus and just present, you know, Jesus uh, essentially didn't come to give us a law, a law book. He didn't say, this is the bar, and try and jump and reach it. And at the same time, he didn't come and say, you know, go and do as you please and live life. He came as the solution to our greatest need. He came. And he gave us a way forward. And I'm excited about this ministry of reconciliation, reconciling people to Christ. And that's something that we're all involved in. Uh, but the world is full of trouble at the moment. I'm sure you'd agree. There's trouble. There's war going on. There's economic uncertainty. There's unstable times. And then there's our own domestic problems in our nation, things that are happening. And then there's also our personal challenges if we start diving into those. So there's a lot of need, and I think we need supernatural answers to a lot of it. I feel like God has led us almost to the point, like like the Israelites to the Red Sea. There's no way through except for the supernatural means of God. There's no way to traverse through anything else except by God's grace and His answers and His miracles. To try and do it would be to try and build a boat while you've got an army coming at you to cross the Red Sea and move a million people. It's never going to happen. We've got to do it God's way. And so in the midst of that, I think it's easy to lose sight of why Christ came, and it's easy to lose sight of the fact He's coming again. So I want us to prepare in our hearts for the season ahead, and uh, let's pray. Lord, we thank you, God, that you're a good God. You, uh, you know every need in this room right now. In fact, even right now where we're sitting, you're aware of what every person is facing. You know what the challenges are ahead, and God, you have already given us your grace and your promises and your answers. You've already prepared a table before us in the presence of our enemies. 
You have gone before us, God, and you've paved the way. And so we pray this morning, help us to have ears to hear and eyes to see what you're doing, Holy Spirit. I pray that, God, our our hearts will be ready to receive in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Who brought a Bible to church this morning? Yeah? Cool. If you didn't, just turn to the person, take their Bible off them, and give it back at the end. It's not stealing. It's borrowing. All right. So we're going to read from John chapter 1. If you've got a Bible and if you've got a phone, it's all good. Not judging. Just turn in your your phone uh, to John in chapter 1 and verse 19 to 34. We're going to read that this morning from God's Word. And it reads like this. Now, this was the testimony, John's testimony, when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then, who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied with the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight for the way of the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent to question him, obviously didn't like his answer. Why then did you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John said. But among you stands one who you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And this happened in Bethany on the other side of the Jordan. The next bit says, in verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one who I meant when I said, a man comes after me who has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on who you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify this is God's chosen one. Amen. Amen. Awesome. And in just these 15 verses, I think the Bible teaches us about how to be prepared for Christ's coming and His second return as well. So there's a few things happening, and there's just a couple that I want to highlight this morning. The first one is John, and he makes this big claim. He's getting interrogated by the religious leaders of the day, and he starts saying, you know, I'm not. I'm not this, I'm not this person. I'm not this person. I am not. And uh, he denies being Christ, but he's preparing the way for Jesus. And those words, I am not, is actually the ego oik imi. I think that's how you say it. I am not. Later on in John, we see Jesus say, I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the good shepherd. I'm this, I'm this. I am, I am. He says, ego imi. Jesus is ego imi, and we are ego oik imi. So if you're ever confused if you're Jesus or not, or God, just think oik. And... (laughs) In John's Gospels, the thing is, they say to him, are you Elijah? And he says, no. But we know because of the other Gospels that Jesus actually points out John is Elijah. In Luke, it says to to Zechariah, John's father, he was a symbol of Elijah. So we know that John is actually this, this this image of Elijah, but John's like, it's not me. It's not me. 
And scholars are a little bit divided. Some people think that he just didn't want to take the limelight. You know, it's like those Kiwis. We just avoid any spotlight. Uh, Or others suggest that he didn't quite comprehend the significance of his role at the time. I just think is that John didn't care about titles. I mean, he ate locusts. You know, he didn't care about titles. He wore like, he wore fur and he ate honey and he ate locusts and he lived in the desert. Um, John didn't care about it, but he didn't belittle himself. There's a difference, I think, between knowing who you are in God and knowing your place in God's story. And I think sometimes, if I'm honest, and if you weren't born in New Zealand, you may not have heard of the term, the tall poppy syndrome. Well, you may have, but in New Zealand, if you've been born in this country, you know if someone comes to you tomorrow at work and says, oh, great job on that spreadsheet, or great job on stitching up that person's hand, or, you know, well done for leading that, uh, that, that singing at assembly, Tussie, you know, quite often we'll be quick to say, oh, there's nothing. Oh, don't think about it. Don't worry, you know. What we're really saying is, I'm so good, you don't need to tell me, but tell me anyway. You know, because this is our culture, this is what we go through. And I think, you know, we need to learn a little bit of a lesson here from John. As he knows who he is, he's not belittling himself, but he's pointing the way to Christ. He's able to say, okay, I'm not this, I'm not this, but this is who I am. Ego oikimi. Don't be deceived, you know. We know who we are in Christ. We've got to get over our... our isn't it amazing that the Bible would speak to our little Kiwi culture about an issue like that? I think the Bible's incredible about what it... When you look at sports, sometimes, often people will say, you know, and especially Pacifica nations... They'll, they'll go, man, boys did hard work, they did this, but I just want to give thanks to my Creator God. I think it's a healthy image of acknowledging the hard work, but also pointing to the Creator who gave them the ability to play, to, to enjoy those sorts of things. And it's a good way to look at this. But the thing that's happening here, the overwhelming picture is that he's pointing the way, he's preparing the way for Christ. John is seeing everything as secondary from that. And that's a, that's a theme we see throughout Scripture. Look at David. He's preparing all of the stuff for the temple, for Solomon to build. He's preparing the temple, the place of the presence of God. Look at Joseph. He's preparing the whole world, in a sense, to be able to eat so that they have something to eat. He's preparing the resources. Abraham, he goes up the mountain with who? With Isaac, his son, and he prepares a sacrifice. He's preparing something, and he goes to sacrifice his son, and what happens? God intervenes and says, don't sacrifice your son. Here's a lamb to sacrifice in its place. The whole biblical arc of the Old Testament is preparation for this advent of Christ coming, for this Messiah coming. And that's, that's, where, John, that's where John enters this whole story, is the scene of preparation. And he says these words, I'm not those things, but I am a voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And that scripture is actually from Isaiah 40 verse 3. And I'll read out the whole part. It says, a voice calling in the, a voice of one calling in the wilderness Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway, a highway for our God, a highway. Now, I don't know if it's a highway. Like if we're going to the Coromandel in Christmas, and uh, we heard that the road was closed to the Coromandel, and you've got to take a detour. It's like an hour and a half extra to get to our little beach spot that we go to. And it's not just long. It's windy as well. But apparently, yes, this week I read in the news that they have fixed the road between Auckland and the Coromandel, and it's going to be open before Christmas. Praise the Lord. Even just for my sanity, praise the Lord. 
That is good news, and I don't know how they've done it. Apparently, they just plonked a big bridge or something pre-made in the in the middle of the road, uh, and that. But I don't think what the scripture is getting at is a roading project, prepare a highway. Desert here is a reference to the church of the Gentiles, the desert of God, this place that was the desert. It's non-Jews, people who receive the gift of salvation from God through faith in Him. It's now in all corners of the globe. If you go to parts of Africa, they're worshiping Jesus with much more rhythm than me. If you go to Pacifica, you go to, you go to Samoa or Tonga, they're worshiping God in their language. If you go to parts of China and India right now, they're worshiping, well, not yet, they're probably asleep, but they're going to be worshiping God. If you go to Sweden, if you go to France, if you go to, 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 to all over the globe, people are worshiping Jesus. In the name of Jesus, Gentiles are worshiping. What once was a desert, only Jews had access to the temple, only Jews. Now this whole world has access to God. The brokenness of Adam's sin in the garden has now been made straight through Christ. This, this, this work that Christ has done. And I think the lesson here is, is that to make straight is not our role. Jesus is the one who makes straight. Jesus is the one who came and hung on a cross so that we have an access to God. He's the one that came and did all the work that we could never do. But he does say prepare. He does say prepare the way. So how do we prepare in today's age? How do we prepare for Christ's coming? How do we prepare for Advent? I think one of the areas really simply is what's happening in the story, baptism. In this story, we have a picture of baptism, but we also have a practical, tangible practice of baptism. And, and there's a little bit more to it, you know, when what's happening in baptism. The people were coming to be baptized despite what was happening in the religious scene. They were coming to find, to find uh, God, and they were coming to be baptized. They were repenting of their sins. They were turning from the ways that they were. You remember uh, John would say to the soldiers, you know, be content with your pay. He would say to other things, you know, do this. This is how you need to act. Repent. Turn from the way that you're living. What he was doing was performing this action that was, that was getting ready for the Messiah to come. It was a preparation step. It was a symbol to be made ready to turn to repent. So quite practically, out of this message, we see that baptism is a preparation step. It's a preparation step to meet Christ. And if you're here this morning and you've never been baptized, I encourage you to consider being baptized because it's a witness of Christ's return. Every time someone is baptized, and I'm pointing at a baptism tank just in case you're wondering, if you get baptized, and we've seen more people baptized this year in this church than any other year, and I believe it's a sign God's saying, prepare, be prepared, be ready. Be ready, church, because I'm coming again. And God is saying, you know, be prepared, be baptized this morning. If you haven't been baptized, I'd encourage you to really consider it. Think about it this way. If you have a meal at your home or you have someone over, you normally get prepared for that meal. Generally speaking, you get prepared. Uh, unless you're like our house, sometimes people turn up. But you get prepared and you get ready to have people over. So what does that mean? You, you know, you make sure there's gas in the barbecue. Hey, Tussie. People turn up. <laughs> if you're a Kiwi, you know what I mean. You go to put something on and you think, oh, it's a little bit light. And we've got dinner in 20 minutes. And then there's an argument that follows. Anyway, and you're racing down to swap the gas bottle. But imagine if you're about to have a meal and someone turns up and you say to them, oh, it's great that you're here. I'll just go and start the dishwasher. And you like, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't go and start the dishes just before the meal. Well, maybe you have before. You get what I mean. You prepare before the meal. You prepare before the guests 
get there. You want to be ready. You want to be ready. You want to be ready to receive people. You don't want to be caught last minute. It's not that you can't put something on for them. It's just that you feel more prepared. Baptism is a way of saying, I'm prepared to meet my maker. I'm symbolizing to the world that Christ is coming again, and I want to be ready to meet him. Baptism. Secondly, if we zoom in a little closer at John in this context, his purpose, his call, his mission, even his clothing, everything about him is wrapped up in someone greater. He's pointing the way to Christ. His whole life is giving these signposts toward Jesus. It's not just about him. He's looking at the Christ. He says, I'm the one of crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. It's important to know at this time, though, that many of the Jews in that time, they were waiting for the Messiah to appear, and they were ready for him to appear. They were waiting for him to appear. But what I didn't know, and as I was reading into this, is that they thought the Messiah would first appear in the wilderness. That was the place they had in mind of him appearing. If you read through scriptures, there's, there's indicators that Christ would first, the Messiah would first appear in the wilderness. So they were expecting him to appear there. And here's John in the wilderness baptizing people, a symbol, an, a, an eschatological symbol of God returning. And so they're wondering what's going on. There was anticipation, and he's there on the scene, and he appears in the wilderness. And I just want to look at that word, wilderness, for a minute, because I think there's something in this as we prepare for God, as we think about Christmas. There's also this other side of wilderness. Why don't you just say that word, wilderness? It's, a, it's like if you say it really slowly, it's a, it's a wild word, wilderness. You know, you think, I think at the moment, though, if you say the word wilderness, in our culture, there's kind of this like wonderful escapism to wilderness. You, do you know what I mean? There's this like, ooh, wilderness. Let's go to the wilderness. You know, at the moment, um, Katie and I just celebrated 17 years of marriage yesterday. And um, yes, praise God. She's not here. No, I'm just kidding. She's, she's, uh, we, um, and every year we go away for our anniversary. We go away for a couple of days with our kids. And we're, I was looking into places where to go. And you can, you know, you can go away, you can Airbnb. But do you know one of the things you pay the most money for is a wilderness experience? Like I'm talking like Portaloo, like a shower that's outside. You don't even have walls. It's a tent. And this is, and you, you almost pay the same amount of money for like going into to the hotel, you know, you're paying about the same amount of money to have this wilderness experience, this, this eco-tragedy. Anyway, so you're going and you're paying this off-grid. It's all about the off-grid, getting away and all that sort of stuff. Minus five stars, if you like. And I, as I was researching this, I just thought, wow, like the wilderness, the Bible never romanticizes wilderness. It doesn't glorify it. It, it doesn't make it out like we would do in our modern times. Wilderness for biblical characters is either about finding refuge or preparing for Advent, preparing for the kingdom of God. David fleeing from Saul was a place of refuge, fleeing for his life. He's, he's running and he's running and he's in the wilderness because he's, his life is under threat and he finds refuge in the wilderness. Elijah fed by ravens in the wilderness. He's escaping from things and he's on his own and he's getting fed supernaturally. Or it's a place of preparation. And this is what John is symbolizing, this place of preparation for the advent of God's kingdom. And Jesus does the same. If we read in Mark 1, at that time, sorry, at once, the Spirit, same Spirit, pushed Jesus out into the wild for 40 wilderness days and nights. He was tested by Satan. Wild animals were his companions and angels 
took care of him. Is there a wilderness in your life right now? Do you, do you get the sense that there's a wilderness happening in your life? I think a lesson or an implication of this is discerning what is that wilderness. Is it a refuge time of refuge in God, a place of safety in God, or is it a place of preparation for the advent of God's kingdom in your life? Often a wilderness time can be a sense of God preparing you for something He's about to do in the kingdom, which involves your life. Often it's a place of preparation into the season ahead. And I think that's what John's getting at here. But at other times, it can be a place of refuge, a place of just being with God. You know, it can be dangerous, but it can be beautiful. I want to read out these words because I think he puts it in a much better way from Eugene Peterson on wilderness. So I'll just read this out. In the wilderness, there's a tension between the beauty and the danger, between pristine simplicities and sinister threats. And because most of us can't sustain this tension for too long, we live in towns and cities. We surround ourselves with water faucets and furnaces and roofs and street signs, grocery stores and police officers and firefighters. We lock our doors at night. We put umbrellas over our head when it rains. We keep our dogs on a leash. But there are times, no matter how thoroughly civilized, when we're plunged into wilderness. Not a geographical wilderness, but a circumstantial wilderness. Everything is going along fine. We've learned the language of a country. We've made a schedule that imposes some order on the chaos of time. We've accepted responsibilities that define our significance. We've heard people speak our name and determined that we're identifiable. And then suddenly we're beside ourselves. We don't know what's going on within us or with those around us or what's important to us. Feelings erupt in all of us that call to question things we've never questioned before. There's a radical change in our bodies, in our emotions, in our thinking, in our friends, in our job. We're out of control. We're in the wilderness. When I read those words, I thought, wow, it's, how many people are going through a place of wilderness? You know, maybe it's someone you know close to you. Maybe it's you, you know, going through this wilderness. I think, a, I think a, an implication of this is saying, what, what is that wilderness? Is it refuge or is it a place of preparation? If it's a place of preparation, hang in there. God brings you through. You know, Pastor Tark often says, if you're going through a valley, just keep going. Don't camp out. Just keep going. I would say, if you're in a wilderness, discern what place you're in. Is it refuge or is it preparation for the advent of God's kingdom in your life? Knowing which one it is, I think, is real key to understanding God's will and His purpose. So John is preparing in the wilderness, and he points towards the Messiah and then he sees Jesus. That scripture says, doesn't it? It says, the very next day, John saw Jesus coming. And he says these words, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What a beautiful line, the Lamb of God. Now, just so you're certain, it's not this Lamb of God. Okay. <clears throat> Some of you are laughing because you know that band, but that is not what he means, the Lamb of God. <laughs> The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the sin of the world. And just sin here is hamashia. It's a singular word, the world's collective brokenness. He didn't just take part of world's brokenness. He didn't just take the part of brokenness in New Zealand. He didn't just take the brokenness. Um, he took the world's brokenness and he solved, he dealt with it. He took it away. That is good news. That is such good news. 
But this Passover lamb, it's, it's interesting, he uses the word the lamb of God. And scholars are a little bit undecided. Some people say it's the Passover lamb of Exodus on the door frames. Others say maybe it's a reference to the triumphant lamb of Revelation. Uh, and others say it's the guilt offering lamb that we read about in the Levitical law. So there's a little bit of not sure about that. But one thing is certain, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it's Jesus. Jesus is the Word, the light, the life, the Lamb of God, His person, His ministry, ultimately His death, acts for reconciliation of the whole world to God. It is the chief office of Christ. That's what He came. You know, we've just had a new uh, chief CEO take over our country, (laughs) Uh, and with two deputy CEOs, by the way. Yeah, interesting. Anyway, so that, that, that's, we've got someone running New Zealand, different, and he's got a chief role. Christ's chief role was to come in place of humanity and take the brokenness of the world. That was his chief thing to do, and that's what he did. And thank God that he did that. Thank God he decided to come for you and for me and take our brokenness collectively and take it away. And that gives us, it's a massive reassurance. It's a huge heartwarming uh, blessing to know that Christ came and did this. He removed our sin. And you know, when He removed our sin, He took it all. He took it away. I love those words, take it away. He took it away. You know, if you go to McDonald's tomorrow and you get takeaways, uh, sometimes when you go to McDonald's, you're in the drive-thru and you're getting your takeaways, and there's that moment of hesitation when you're getting your order. If you know what I, maybe some of you know what I mean. You're getting your order from McDonald's, and you have, you have faith that they've put the right order in the bag. And so you take your McDonald's, but there's a part of your mind that thinks, yeah, they've probably forgot the chips. Or there's a, probably a part of you that thinks, no, they didn't put a Big Mac in, they put something else in. And there's a part of you that thinks, just before I Way, I wonder if I should check. Has anyone else done this? Check the bag and actually think, you know, do a bit of investigation before you take away. You know, that's a terrible illustration, but you get the point. Jesus is not like that. He doesn't take away our sin and then go, yeah, I'm going to put some of this back. You know, that's no good there. You need to deal with that yourself. That's not, oh, by the way, this is McDonald's in uh, Mount Roscoe. <coughs> just saying. But if you go uh, to Te Aratu, <laughs> just saying. All right. So the Bible's clear. There's two possible destinations for every human soul, heaven or hell. Matthew 25, 34, Luke 16, 22. He's taken away our sin, and only the righteous inherit eternal life. The only way to be declared righteous before God is through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The souls of the righteous go directly to the presence of God. But to those who do not receive Jesus Christ as Savior, Death means everlasting punishment, described in a variety of ways. The lake of fire, outer darkness, and a prison. I think probably the, the one that gets me is total separation from God. Total separation from the presence of God. This place of punishment is eternal. Matthew 25 verse 46 says that. There's no biblical support for the notion that after death people get another chance. This is good news. When we think about Jesus, but there's also good news because there's bad news. Because Jesus confronts us with the Scriptures and says, here's life. Here's what I've done. I've come to take away the sins of the world. But those sins are real. Those sins have been dealt with, and it's up to us to make that response. He takes it away from us. You know, if you think about it, tomorrow if you sin, 
if you, when you sin, I was going to say, if you, when you sin, if you sin, when you sin, <laughs> we will sin. If you walk around for the next three weeks thinking, oh my gosh, I really need to be a lot better. And in about a month or two, when I'm feeling better about myself, and uh, I've made some better choices, and I'm feeling good, and uh, I didn't lie anymore to my husband or my wife, or I didn't lust, or I did pay my taxes, and I've done all those things, when I'm a bit better and everything's a bit greener, then I'll, then I'll get back on track with God. I'll start doing more at church. I'll start being a better Christian in my workplace, blah, 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 once I feel a bit better. C.S. Lewis says, we have a strange illusion that mere time cancels sin. But mere time does nothing, either to the fact or to the guilt of a sin. Jesus is the only one, and he takes away that sin. Let me read out one more scripture on this. 2 Corinthians 5.19. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not, people, not counting people's sins against them. I don't know about you, but that's pretty encouraging, that God is not counting my sin against me. He's not sitting there with a score tally going, oh, Oh, tomorrow. Oh, next week. Oh, look, that's one, two, three, four, five. One, two, two. He's not sitting there with a scoreboard. I think often this, this plagues our mind. We have maybe a part of us is stuck here thinking, I just need to be a bit better. Part of us is stuck there thinking, God, I just need to earn a little bit more of your favor before I, you know, do this or act this way. There's no way to achieve it. It doesn't matter how hard you work. There's no way to earn God's merit, His favor. Romans 3.20 says, No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works. By the works. You're never going to get righteous before God because of your works. Stop trying. <laughs> St- stop trying to do it in your own strength. Put an end to it. Understand that God has done it all on the cross. He's taken away every sin. And I think, you know... I don't know, you think about, well, how do you apply that verse? I just think the implication for us is that, do we live in that freedom of Christ? Do we live daily in the freedom that Christ has done it all? Is that how you live your life? Is that how I live my life, with this mindset that God has done it all? Don't wake up tomorrow thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be better today. I mean, yes, Christ speaks to our morals. Christ speaks to the way we talked with one another. Christ speaks about how to love, but it doesn't start in our strength. It doesn't start with what we can do for God. It starts with what God has already done and what you'll never be able to do. It starts with Him, and it flows out from there. This really is the good news, the gospel of Jesus. So this coming Christmas, uh, amidst the presents and the food and the holidays, I really want to encourage us, take every opportunity to point towards Christ. You know, John in the story, he's baptizing, and he's saying, wow, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. And then he says, I saw the Spirit. The Spirit came down and rested on him. And he, he's the one that's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. I think concluding this little story is the sense that we need the Holy Spirit. You cannot do this in your own strength. You cannot um, even begin to do this with your own power. It comes from the Holy Spirit. This is the verse that reads out, John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water, told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. With the Holy Spirit. So here's a point today. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Has anyone ever prayed for you to have the Holy Spirit in your life? We're going to give an opportunity for that after the service, to be filled with the Spirit. 
We receive this grace and we're empowered by His Holy Spirit. I think the challenge too here is not to fall back into the religious mindsets. Not to fall back. Remember John? He's getting interrogated by the, by the chief priests and the Levites. And they're hitting him up. What are you doing? You know, why are you baptizing him? You know, why are you eating locusts? What's wrong with you? Like they're interrogating him. They're wanting an answer. They're coming from this preset mind agenda to try and put on him what needs to happen. This is, this is what we need this to look like. They're wanting some sort of answer to take back. And he's just standing there. And he's just saying, no, I'm not this, I'm not this, but I'm just preparing the way for God. I'm just preparing the way for God. I'm just showing the way towards God. And then he sees the Holy Spirit on Jesus. Take every opportunity this coming Christmas season to point people to Christ. Take every opportunity. I told that story at the start about the young guy that came on to try and get money and um, on the, while I was having a barbecue. And, and like, honestly, he was so open to God, so open to God. I just think there's people all around us all the time in your life, in my life, your workplace, your neighbors, even like that. People come into your door. Take the opportunity to point people to Christ. And lastly, in this little story, I think God, we've got to remember, God is the primary actor in all of this. He's the one that this story is all about. God is the one pulling the strings. He's the one at the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry. He's the one at the end. Even Jesus in his earthly role was, you know, even in his, all his divine attributes, but everything was in accordance with what the Father said to do by the Holy Spirit. God's plans will prevail despite all human effort to resist them. It is God that does the creating. It's God that does the stage directing. He's the main actor. He's the one that determines the plot. He's the one that drives it forward by his actions. This is not human religion. This is God's story. This is his advent. This is his coming. So today, church, you and me, we're the ones that narrate God to the world around us. We're the ones that narrate the story to people that are watching in on our lives. Your family, your cousins, your, your nieces, your nephews, your, the people that you work alongside. Same goes for me. We're the ones narrating God's story unto them and to the world watching. But God is the primary subject matter of our message. He's the one that the story is all about. He's the one that we need to keep lifting up. Anything else won't last. Anything else is not true enough. Anything else will actually not fill the gap. Any other message apart from Jesus, and we've missed it. We've missed it at this Advent time. So I encourage you, wherever you are in your, in your, in your work, or wherever at home or uni or school, keep pointing the way to Christ. And as I wrap up, as, um, maybe as the worship team come back up, let me just read out this one verse one more time. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Prepare for Christ's advent. Point to Christ's return. And as we do that, I believe that we'll begin to just see more of Christ revealed in, in our own lives, in our church, in our community, and especially at this time at Christmas as people are open to God. Why don't we stand, church?